Welcome to Reading Aloud Live. My name is Reverend Campbell, and it is great to have you. Today we're reading Might is Right, and we're part three. And actually, we're coincidentally in chapter three, talking about equality. And we're going to pick up in section eight here in just a second. Let me give a quick shout out. Uh, Faylair, good to see you, man. Valeria, how are you, my dear? What up, William? How you doing, Nadine? Uh, Vasuri, how, how are you doing? Good to see you. And Aaron. It's always great to see you. Uh, anyone else who jumps in after the fact, the purpose of all these, right, is to have a bit of a back and forth, is to have fun with the readings. Um, Might is Right specifically was sort of dissected uh, as a whole volume by Magus Anton Zandor LeVay, and he sort of reformulated it, twisted it, cut a little bit here, chopped a little bit there, spliced things together, and made the Book of Satan out of it. And so you can't really complain about that. I mean, that's just fantastic. Everything in Satanism is take what you like and sort of disregard what you don't like. There is, to be fair, a lot of Might is Right that I don't particularly like. We haven't even gotten to the worst of it yet. That being said, I'm still going to read it. Why? Because I feel like <laughs> there's no mandate. There wasn't even a request. Well, maybe there was back when I was doing standard Bible, but, but I'm doing it for me, man. <laughs> and if you guys appreciate it, well, then I'm glad. I'm glad you can join us. Uh, Zachary, how you doing, man? It's good to see you. Uh, we are going to be talking about the idea of equality and we're going to get into some other stuff later on, but I do want to start fresh as I alluded to in a daily vlog earlier, by sort of laying the groundwork of my, my position, uh, I do not believe in the idea that individuals should be racist towards mass groups. I believe that every individual has the right to have any opinions about any personal interaction or even any broad constructive ideas about other groups, because that's just human nature. That's our tribal lizard brains coming out. But when you take action on it on a broad scale and start treating others rather than as individuals, but as a sort of monolith, well, then you're, you're doing it wrong. You're living life wrong. You're living life through ignorance, bigotry, and hate. And let's be honest, in the same way that we do not love indiscriminately as Satanists, why would we hate indiscriminately? Why wouldn't we choose the specific individuals that rile us up to lay our hate at their feet, to direct our destruction towards? Well, we do. That's why we're not racist. <laughs> Because we don't target mass groups, we target individuals. Now, target them with love as well, so let's not pretend it's all negative here. And that's, I think, probably the most misunderstood aspect of Satanism, and is that it's, it's not about hatred or um, world domination uh, in the name of some anthropomorphic deity or devil. Rather, it's about individual will to be. It's about becoming a better version of you. And that's it. And so love. Love all you want and hate. Hate those that deserve it with a whole heart. 
But let's not dwell too much on either of those. And certainly in the context of Might is Right, let's not dwell on the negative aspects of this collection. And instead, perhaps, as the doctor did, take little pieces that may be relevant to one's own life. And if they work, then champion them. And if they don't, throw them out with the trash. I don't see why we couldn't do that if the doctor did it. Or why anyone couldn't do that, because that's what we as humans do. All right? So, enough with the, this is a racist diatribe book. Any book written by anyone could be construed in any way by any individual reader. We're going to instead see this as a learning opportunity. Mm, yeah, that's what we're doing here. We're going to learn. Uh, let's test our own understandings. I like that, to better understand ourselves. That's a really good line there, Zachary. Um, so, let's dive in, shall we? Yeah. Get the screen up, get my glasses on, and let's start... Oh, hold on. Let's start with Section 8. <clears throat> Every atom of organic matter has its own vital peculiarity. Every animate being is different in osseous structure and chemical composition. Ethnology, biology, history, all proclaim equality to be a myth. Even the great epics of antiquity are all glorifications of inequality. Inequality of mind, inequality of birth, courage or condition. Uh, condition. Can inequality or... Can equality of body, equality of mind, equality of origin, equality before the law, or any other kind of equality be demonstrated by any one fact? Mentally and morally, every breathing being is a self-poised monad, a differentiated ego. No two germs, planets, suns, or stars are alike. Among the higher vertebrates, this is especially so, and consequently, the only law that men ought to honor or respect is the law that originates and finds its final sanction in themselves, in their own consciousness. Inequality is summed up in the scientific axiom, inferior organisms succumb, that superior organisms may survive, propagate, and possess. In other words, the proper place for Lazarus is to rot among the dogs. And the proper place for Caesar is at the head of his irresistible legions. From the soles of his feet to the crown of his head, the bones, skin, and flesh of his body, even the gray brain pulp, the electric nerves and tissues, mental ganglia and internal viscera of a man belonging to the African, Mongolian, Semite, or Negrito breeds, are all fundamentally different in formation, constituents, and character from the corresponding anatomical sections in men of Aryan descent. The points of non-resemblance may be superficially imperceivable, but they are organic, deep-seated. Notwithstanding, the dexterous writers of strategic fables, dross is dross, gold is gold, and some men are born better, born nobler, born braver than others. 
aristocracy by birth rests upon an unalterable scientific basis of heredity and selection, but an aristocracy of money rests mainly upon bolts and bars, i.e., upon laws that may be abrogated at a moment's notice. Though unable to reason out, in logical sequence, their inherent abhorrence of social and racial equality, yet most men instinctively detest it in practice. What white father, for example, would encourage the marriage of a hulking, thick-skulled negro with his beautiful and accomplished daughter? Would he enthusiastically give her away to the matrimonial embraces of a Chinaman, a coolie, or the leper hugs of a polluted mean white? Is there ten such citizens even in North America where equality of birth and condition is so much speechified and never seen? Is there five? Is there one who would not rather see the daughter of his loins stiff, stark, and cold in her shroud? Should that one exist, he being of sound mind, let him speak. Then and only then can this diabolical gospel of intrinsic equality be reconsidered. Meanwhile, plain, practical citizens are justified in regarding it, not as a self-evident truth, but an insolent, malignant, and abominable lie, a lie that shall yet be stamped out forever with blood and fire. You have only to look at some men to know that they belong to an inferior breed. Take the Negro, for example. His narrow cranial development, his prognathous jaw, his projecting lips, his wide nasal aperture, his simian disposition, his want of forethought, originality, and mental capacity, are all peculiarities strictly inferior. Similar language may be applied to the Chinaman, the coolie, the Kanaka, the Jew, and to the rotten-boned city degenerates of Anglo-Saxondom, rich and poor. Vile indeed are the inhabitants of those noxious cattle crawls. London, Liverpool, New York, Chicago, New Orleans, and yet in those places is heaped up the golden plunder of the world. Ethnographists of the very highest authority assert that over 10,000 years ago, the black, white, and yellow types of men, animals, were as pronounced and as ineffaceable as they are today. The, hiero the hieroglyphics and records of ancient tombs and monuments, cuneiform inscriptions and antiquarian researches, and the systematic study of prehistoric skulls and skeletons all bear the same uniform testimony. Inequality of birth and condition can never perish from off the earth. Never! And why should it? Why can... Who can fill the valleys up and lay the mountains low? I got something to say about that. <laughs> uh, it starts by asking, what man would allow his daughter to marry, as he refers to it, a Negro? Um, many. So your argument is null and void. Right from the beginning. Right from go. All of this ranting about different regional births, different ethnic backgrounds somehow being inferior to Aryan backgrounds is not only completely bullshit, but it's the stupidest thing anyone could ever say. Because at the genetic level, we are 
all connected from roughly five different uh, Homo sapien ancestors, or Homo sapien-like ancestors, from Denisovans to... Uh, uh, um, now I can't remember any of them. <laughs> uh, Homo erectus to um, Cro-Magnon. Uh, and then there's a couple uh, short-statured variants in there as well that we all descended from. Those are our ancestors, and they do not look like modern humans at all. So to somehow say, because you were born in one country or another, or your appearance differs from others, indicates some sort of quality, is fucking retarded. And this is the problem with racists, is that they're fucking stupid. They believe pseudoscience that is completely made up whole cloth and manufactured by racists, to prove racist points. That's just reality. So, wanted to make sure that, <laughs> that I put that out there. Because, whoa, he just dives right in. Both feet first, this guy. Um, equality is partially dependent on environment. Yes, that is absolutely true. Um, partially, it's based on the society. So, regionally. Uh and then individual merit, whether or not you can step up and grab a hold of the supposed equality that that society offers uh, and whether or not you can't. That, I mean, that, that's really what it comes down to. It's individual. That's why equality isn't a, a, a true construct in all of mankind. It's an individual basis. So it is interesting, though, I have to say, because when, when you read racist literature that is just blatant and full of bullshit and then you reflect on the individuals writing it or reading it and believing it knowing that it's bullshit you can't help but kind of look down <laughs> on that type of person right so is it okay to be racist against racists is that a thing can we say that all anglos who believe this sort of hate is a race of their own because I certainly don't want to be associated with them. I don't know. Let's think about it and let's go on. Nine. Even the giddy doctrinaire who so cunningly concocted the bombastes furioso fictions of the Declaration could not apparently have believed them himself. Was he not a slave driver residing among slave drivers? who bought and auctioned human cattle for dollars and cents all the days of his life? No doubt, for purposes of statecraft and necessary warcraft, he wove his philosophic preamble of strong deceit. Probably also, he was comparatively honest and even sincere, but among the alluring priests of unreason. The most dangerous is the fanatical propagandist. When Jefferson dictated his fatal and untenable abstractions, he was not even original, but plagiarized Zeno the Stoic, Jack Cade, Savanarola, Milton, Plato, John Ball, etc. Zeno said, all men are by nature equal, but carefully refrained from attempting to demonstrate it. Milton defended it in his prose essays. Plato voiced it in his Republic. John Ball preached it in medieval England. Savonarola perished trying to establish it in Florence. Jack Cade 
Robespierre, and Christ were all failures, ghastly failures. If human experience proves anything at all, writes James Fitzjames Stevens, it proves that if the restraints are minimalized, if the largest possible measure of liberty is accorded to all human beings, the result will not be equality, but inequality, reproducing itself in a geometrical ratio. Remove the restraints and see how quickly an aristocracy based on merit would mow down an aristocracy based on credit. In actual life, he who claims equality with another is ever called upon to prove his claim, not by a grotesque abracadabra of silly phrases parroted from antique philosophers or blue moldy documents, but by actual deeds, that is to say, by producing his credentials. Constitutional theories are all very well to humbug stridulating slaves, but in a freeman's household or business, they are not legal tender. Among men of affairs, natural egalitarianism is regarded as amusing moonshine, mere spread egalism, fit for public meetings only. Business minds thoroughly understand, having learnt by bitter experience, that some men are destined by nature to bear command, and some to obey, aye, even perhaps for a thousand years before their birth. No one can study the laborers on a farm, the hands in a big foundry or factory, the seamen in a large seaport, the nomadic hirelings on a railroad, construction gang, or the clerks and salesmen in a city warehouse without perceiving at a glance that the vast majority of them are extremely poor specimens of humanity. The ideal type of manhood or womanhood, that is to say, ye thoroughbred, is not to be found among these captive hordes, for captives they really are. Their heads are, to a large extent, unsymmetrical. Their features distorted, ape-like, unintelligent. Their bodies are out of all proportion, dwarfed, stunted, diseased, malformed, cretinous. Their movements are contracted, artificial, ungainly, and their minds, outside of routine, are utter vacuums. When compared with the traditional idea of strength, beauty, courage, and nobleness of character, they are an extremely ill-bred herd of cattle, exhibiting all the psychological stigmata of inherited rain rot and of the physical decay. A crown of thorns on every brow that is the wage they're earning now. Nine-tenths of them are positively repulsive in language, mentality, and in general appearance. They even display an extraordinary low average of animality, and upon the slightest exposure, perish off like sheep that have the lungworm. Heated rooms, woolen clothing, and stimulating beverages are the means whereby their watery blood is kept in languid circulation. For all that, they breed like rabbits, but every new generation is feebler and more debased than its predecessor. All the scientific evidences of mental, moral, and bodily deterioration are markedly accentuated in them, and their timidity is proverbial. Hard, continuous, methodological labor destroys courage, saps vitality, and demoralizes character. It tames and subdues men, just as it tames and subdues the wild steer or the young colt. Men who labor hard and continuously have no power to think, 
It requires all their vital force to keep their muscles in trim. Indeed, the civilized city working man and working woman are the lowest and worst type of animalculae, ever evolved from dust and slime and oxygen. They actually worship work and bow down before law as an ox team crouches and strains under the lash. Look upon their shrunken cheeks, their thin lips, their narrow, retreating, irresolute jaws, their decaying teeth, sharp, puny noses, small, watery eyes, yellow, bloodless complexions, bent shoulders, dry hair tending to baldness, struggling thin beard, the women with pinched features, waspish, fragile waists, want of bust development, consumptive, neurotic, artificially barren, emaciated, hungry, dwarfed, hysterical. The minds of average workmen and workmen are either total vacuums or stuffed to the brim with every conceivable specimen of lies, iniquity, superstition, and sham. Indeed, how could they remain in such conditions of base, loathsome hirelingism? Were they not deficient in all the primitive virtues, in all that is manly and womanly? Behold, upon their brow is stamped with red-hot cattle brands the word damned. Eternally tortured are they in a patent purgatory invented by politicians. Their tribulations, however, may really be but progression in disguise because their shameful self-degradation must ultimately end in their utter extinguishment. Hopeless are they, entangled in the snare, hopelessly defeated. For them there is no escape, no, not even through fields of blood. Poor trembling wretches, washing their own hands in their own sweat, nay, in their own heart's blood. Born thralls are they, or born madmen. Which? Their days are without hope, and their years are consumed for naught. When their masters speak unto them, there is trembling in all their joints. They waste their lives pursuing shadows, and for hire build their own tombs. Their minds are below freezing point, nay, below zero. Crippled souls are they. They knead their own flesh into daily bread, and transmute their contrite hearts into basins of gruel. They look unto idols for deliverance, aye, and grind their dry bones into baskets of coal. At thoughts of battle, they blench with terror. At sight of naked bayonets, they run like whipped hounds. Therefore, strength leapeth down upon them as the panther leaps upon his quarry, and in a moment of time they are blotted out, cut down like the grass. My soul abhorreth them as an abomination. My hand reaches out to clutch them by the throat. Wow. So, um, <laughs> what I find interesting in that is that he's like, uh, they're breeding themselves out as they degrade. They're naturally degrading and inferior. Who are the most successful athletes? Businessmen, actors. Yeah. It's not just Aryan backgrounds. It is literally a cornucopia of ancestry. How stupid! These fucking people. And it's funny, like, at the end, when you're reading, he's like, and the, the, the hard workers. Nowadays, I've never met 
a straight up racist who is not blue collar or poor, you know, middle class blue collar or poor. So what does that say? Who is who is this actually suck talking about? Maybe the stupid, the ignorant, <laughs> the hate filled morons of every society. Yeah, I like how they say um, uh, they they um, whimper. Uh, I'm trying to sum it up here, but like they they whimper as their masters speak to them or something like that. Yeah, if you got beat on a daily basis, you'd probably whimper or wince when the master come round again too. <laughs> that has nothing to do with ethnicity. That has to do with physical violence and abuse, systemic abuse. Fucking <laughs> stupid, unbelievable. Um. <laughs> Zachary I don't know I don't know I feel like he just took out a thesaurus and just went down the line with negative words and just printed them all out I really don't feel like um... but again to be fair we're not working with a full deck of cards here so what are you going to do alright Ooh, hold on, I like this. Moira, uh, Moira. We have no control over the inherited circumstances or the odds, mostly, but I feel that we can apply our work to counterbalance it. In doing so, we give better inheritance to those who come after us. Yeah, that, I mean, that's the promise of America, actually, is that if you work hard, you can accomplish anything. Now, not everyone realizes that. Realizing doesn't mean it comes to fruition. But there are stories all over. I mean, our last president, President Obama, he came from a very, very poor family, and he ended up being the president of the United States, the most powerful man in the world. So it can definitely happen, and circumstance does not dictate outcome. It's just your starting point, and that's all. And that's why I always say, you know, it's, it's up to the individual. But like he was saying um, in this, uh, this is tough that I'm, I'm sort of equating some of his ideas here, but not every human has the capacity to do anything. And that's what we have to fully understand. That's the basis of inequality, that we are not all born the exact same, that we can all accomplish the same things. You find out what your niche is, you find out what you're best at, and you try to develop that even greater. But the truth is, is everyone has a limit to what they can accomplish. Some people are just vacuums of thought. I've met people like that. And that's not to say that there's not a place for them in a society, but that's just to say that you know, they, they exist. So he's, he's not wrong that there are people like that, but to attribute it just to specific ethnicities, that's where he is wrong. Um, all right. So anyway, uh, blue collar and poor always strike me as coming from poor genetics, abject backgrounds. That's terrible. That's not true. I've worked many labor jobs and can attest to it. I, I know I, I've got friends who, um, I say that plural, but really I think it's only one um, who is actually really intelligent and he's blue collar and he's not racist at all. So it's certainly not all of them, but I'm just saying the only ones I've met, like I, I'm, I'm positive that there are wealthy racists out there. I'm a hundred percent positive of it. We have one in the white house. I just haven't personally met the man. So <laughs> the majority of them, I would say are probably blue collar. 
Uh, you're opposite of Blake's. I've never met someone born into wealth who isn't worth a right. Ooh, that's interesting. Yeah. Hmm. Both extremes. Let's dive in. Number 10. 10. Heredity has ever so much more to do with social conditions than the majority of modern men are willing to admit. It is plain, however, judging by results, that nations ignore birth and breeding at their peril. For just as there are noble animals, there are noble men if a stock raiser throws down his dividing fences and permits all his cattle to mix up promiscuously together. What kind of a herd would he have, say, in one decade? Nothing but weeds, hybrids, and mongrels. Now, that is exactly what nations attempt when they endeavor to establish an equality of privileges and of happy, peaceful conditions. The close psychological connection that exists between ancestry and degeneracy, crime, genius, insanity, etc., etc., is now everywhere being acknowledged, thanks to the researchers of Galton, Lombroso, Masso, Otto, Amon, Ferry, Kraft, Ebbing, and others. If criminals are criminals by descent or by birth, is it not equally probable that slaves are slaves by the facts of their breed and ancestry? Does it not also follow that heroes and strong, powerful, resolute personalities have derived their solid stamina from their forefathers? Indeed, all history and all genealogies proves that this is a mathematical fact. Great men are ever the descendants of mighty warriors, and conquerors, that is to say, of mighty animals. Von Otto Amon cites a remarkable instance which goes to prove the selective and ethnic advantages of warfare. He states that all German children born during the Franco-Prussian campaign of 71, also the years immediately following, show a strikingly high average intelligence, both of body and mind. The converse is equally demonstrable. Show me a herd of humans who has been underfed daily drudges from their youth up and i will show you a herd of cattle whose ancestors were also propertyless vassals and serfs beaten in diplomacy and in war for ages past take the irish peasantry and the Felhellene of egypt as examples this statement admits of no qualification for if one except exemption can be discovered it will serve to prove the general rule a man in the full possession of all his faculties, of lenine ancestry, well-born, self-contained, would rather cut his own throat from ear to ear with a blacksmith's rasp than live the life of an average hired laborer in any civilized hell on earth. The nexus between self-mastership and breed is of tremendous significance. Therein is the lost secret. Undoubtedly, newborn infants are daily coming wailing into this world with the words statesman, tramp, wastrel, warrior, priest, philosopher, criminal, thief, king, slave, and coward indelibly branded upon their brows, their hearts, and their brains. Our talents, our virtues, and our vices depend entirely upon our individual mechanism, and that mechanism is the result of countless chemic transformations extending over ages, but modified to a large extent by climate and soil. What is bred in the bone will never come out of the flesh, wrote Pilpay thousands of years ago. There's a pregnant ethnic philosopher and four lines quoted from Karamos. This clay well mixed with marl and sand follows the motion 
of my hand. For some must follow, and some command, though all are made of clay. Although all may be made of clay in a poetic sense, it must never be forgotten that the clay itself is composed of differentiated elements. The clay that is in a black fellow or in a Chinaman is not the clay that is in a Shakespeare or a Bismarck. Some clay will grow good wheat and make very bad bricks, just as some breeds of animals are born to be hunters and others born to be hunted. Some clay will raise splendid crops, even from poor seed, and some never produces anything, no matter how highly cultivated, except thorns and weeds and nettles and poisons. The natures of men are molded almost entirely by the natures of the soil with which they have been grown. Man is a preambulating crop. In some places he grows to perfection. In other localities he won't grow at all or runs to seed. In India, the Anglo-Saxon dwines and dwindles, but in Canada and the northern states he even develops increased stamina outside the great cities. All science, all history, and all experience are unanimous in disproof of equal nature, uh, equal natural rights for all men, that strident doctrine of the fool. And yet the insolent, proofless assertions of a Zeno, a Jefferson, a Jack Cade, Robespierre, or a Jewish carpenter, when fantastically engrossed and framed or bound in a book, are passively accepted by the intellectual serfs of this degenerate 19th century and trumpeted to the ends of the earth as a sublime and holy revelation. Equalityism passes almost unchallenged in public orations because it openly questions its veracity is felt to be unpopular. And with the ignoble leaders of public opinion in all democracies, popularity is everything. The alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. The result in Anglo-Saxondom is simply nauseous. Young men are mentally mutilated, systematically educated by schools, press, and literature upon fundamental hallucinations, pyrotechnic shams, and glittering illusions. Illusions that are the perennial source of fruitless servile uprisings, social heartburnings internecine unpleasantnesses, and sundry other secondary symptoms of social cancer. Our government education systems are absolutely under the direct control of politicians. These priests of the state select and train the teachers, also vote the salaries, and dictate what truths and lies the textbooks shall contain. Indeed, our national schools are managed upon the same Jesuistic plan, whereby the monks and prelates of old successfully worked the universal church. Come right in here, and we'll improve your minds free of cost, suavely saith the high priests of this new idolatry, this devouring dragon, this impersonal state. So the pure-hearted, rosy-cheeked little ones enter unsuspectingly, gradually as they are, brought under the influence, the gray brain pulp is forced out for the, of their plastic young skulls and lies, nice, pretty, poetic lies, mixed with unavoidable facts and perverted truths, skillfully injected. Did you ever see medical students extract the brain of a frog and then fill up the vacuum with pith? The frog does not die, it lives, hops about quite lively, and 
seems to possess its former intelligence and vitality, but it is all illusion. What experimental vivisectionists do the frog, state priests do to the children of men. Bit by bit, with dates and lists and emasculated histories, the inquisitous brain-wrecking devilry proceeds. When completed, young men and women are turned out with addled brains into a warring world, incapables, semi-imbeciles, unable to defend or assert themselves, footballs of fate ready to serve anyone. Is it not notorious, the ineptitude, mechanical imitiveness, and want of initiative displayed by state-educated young men? Instead of being urged to think and act for themselves, they are taught like well-drilled slaves to believe and obey. They are even trained to glorify and worship idols with strident shouts and modulated canticles. Not honest idols of wood and stone, but idols of sheepskin, bound pamphlets, variegated rags, and the falsified renown of dead scoundrels, i.e. statesmen. It requires a stout rope, a firm post, and a muscular men to hold an unbroken colt. But when, by force and petting, he has once been subdued, i.e. tamed, educated, saddled, bridled, he may be led anywhere, even with a piece of twine in the hands of a little child. O oh, ye state priests so adroit, so eloquent, ye cunning demons, ye wolves in sheep's clothing, Ye corruptors of youth, ye generation of vipers, how can you escape from the wrath to come? How can you escape some day from being hung up by the tongue on the red-hot hooks of a real live hell? Thirty years ago, the United States quixotically essayed the, to demonstrate racial equality with rifle bullets and bombshells, but failed most ignominiously. Southern valleys were strewn with northern and southern bones, and millions of tax treasure blown from the lips of cannon without any tangible result, except to demonstrate before an interested world the utter failure and hollowness of equality principles. A people that deliberately enters upon a gigantic war in order to firmly establish a centralized despotism, and at the same time, reduce itself to the social level of the Negro, the Russian Jew, the Coolie, the Chinaman, and the European serf must indeed, to use a suggestive vernacularism, have wheels in its head. The man and brother, lie, has certainly succeeded in writing itself in a constitutional amendment, but in real life it is as far from the actuality as ever it was. The free Negro of New Orleans or Charleston is a more degraded, more despised being, and of less money value to his proprietors now than when it was customary to buy and sell him at the auction block, instead of as at present on the stock exchange. What the late Civil War really accomplished was to degrade the white slaves to the lower level of the plantation nigger, and in that respect it was a triumph of ingenuity. The whites fought actually fought each other to demonize themselves, uh, to demonetize themselves. Equality! Equality! What brilliant deeds have been perpetrated in thy name. Lincoln, however, was not, uh, 
Was he not a great statesman? Decidedly he was. Well, indeed, he knew how to round up the herd with bewitching phrases. Hark! Do you hear those drunken slaves caterwauling down the street? Lo, it is election night! Hurrah! Hurrah! they sing! Well, sound the jubilee! Glory be to Lincoln, the man who made us free! In Morocco, the eunuchs and other menials bless their fate and their prince at the very time he condescends to cut their throats with his own hands. Americans, however, are a freeborn people, not to be duped that way. Alas! Alas! Throughout both northern and southern states, the social chasm between the highest and lowest human organisms, whether white or black or black and tan, is even more pronounced now than ever it was previously. For example, although the Negroes are a majority in many states, they are never permitted to attain actual administrative power, and they never shall. You cannot paint the Negro white with laws and constitutions, though you write it in the fire and smoke of wars and revolutions. Now, you can't paint them white, but you can treat humans as humans. And then individuals on their own merit rise to whatever they can rise to. Oh, Americans are fucking horrible. I, and here's the worst part about this is that his, um, his, his, uh, repulsive reaction to America and Americans, um, is interesting because in the time, he's right. The, the, the Constitution was written by slave owners saying, and then, you know, uh, um, later amendments, declaring all men are created equal. And yet, <laughs> they own slaves. So you can easily go from A to B where this guy is uh, thinking, they're, they're full of shit. They're lying to you. And the idea that the state informs its populace well yeah that is absolutely true they fund schools there are and if there are states in this uh union in, in the united states of america that have religion religion rather than science taught state decreed so we can't pretend that the points he's making aren't all bullshit because some of them are true now i can't extrapolate to as much as he has because i don't believe it but again sliver cut out the little pieces that are actually true you can't deny it it's just reality which makes us all the more uncomfortable and forces us to have that uncomfortable third side thought oh shit Oh, if, if individual thought were, were simple, we would all be slaves. How strange it would be that these men had video cameras back then. Oh, yeah. Oh, my gosh. It, it would be terrible. I mean, we have, um, we have films that were made back in the day. Like, straight-up racist films that were made um, that depict their visions. And they're absurd. Okay. Uh, this is really interesting. Never heard the rest of Redbeard other than the Book of Satan. <laughs> Welcome. 
<laughs> Welcome to the reality of Ragnar Redbeard, uh, Arthur Desmond. Yeah, he is, uh, he is a fucking monster. <laughs> but you can argue that he is a monster by situation. In, in the same way that racial prejudice in the south of the United States has persisted more than in some other places, it's, it's a learned behavior. He learned it. So he preaches it. That's all it is. It, it's learned behavior. So, yeah, and as, as cop-out as that sounds on its face, what Blake is saying here is absolutely true. He is a product of his time. Everyone is a product of their time. It's just like we're, we have people nowadays trying to cancel out stuff like this. They are a product of their time. They're trying to stifle the reality of history that existed, saying that it's, there's no place in modern life for historical facts. That there were people who believed this way, or that they were people who were championed in this way. But there were. And there are ideas that you're not going to like. And that's reality. So we have to always try to find that odd balance of personal truths through our life experience and knowledge and questioning those truths on a regular basis to determine if they are in fact true. It's not easy, but we can do it. Um, oh, I'm not trying to shit on like anyone, dog. I'm just saying, and you're absolutely right. There are, and it's not just New York. You can go to anywhere in the country because typically types of people live in the same types of areas, either because they choose to, or because they're kind of forced to, um, which is a fucking thing. And so those areas of predominantly one ethnicity are going to be either over or underfunded depending on the culture surrounding it. And so that's why you have systemic racism in schools and that school to prison pipeline that's spoken of. It's because of underfunded schools in these predominantly African-American areas in California even. So yeah, we, we can't pretend it's only in one region. It's all over the, but regionally it's a truth. So Let's continue. 11. The solemnly proclaimed that all men are created equal is as stupid and unscientific as to assert that all dogs, cattle, apes, and trees are created equal. Is there not as many diverse varieties of dogs, cattle, apes, and trees as there are of men, planets, germs, stars, and suns? Where then is the intrinsic equality between an oak tree and a currant bush? between a meddlesome wolf hound and a yelping streetcar, between a buffalo bull and a hand-fed steer, between an untamable gorilla of the woods and an organ grinder's castrated monkey, between a cosmic-brained Bismarck and that famous Christling, the good young man that died. Cannot a blooded bulldog whip a solid score of lean half-starred street mongrels? Upon exactly the same principle, a small body of bold, self-reliant, brainy men are ever more than a match, under any circumstance, for 10,000, nay, 
10 million greasy mechanics. What is a mechanic anyhow, but a specially trained slave? And it would take the spirit of 1,000 American slaves to make that of one live man. Theoretically, all these organisms are of the same species, but in the savage rush for bread, love, space, and life, there are as much functional difference between them as there is between a royal Bengal tiger and Mary's little lamb. The lamb was made to be eaten, and the tiger was made to eat it, and man was born to struggle as the sparks fly upwards. The necessities of environment makes of each man the enemy or rival of other men, more especially those with whom he comes in direct personal conflict. Where then does equality come in? It does not come in at all. It is an idiotic myth. There must always be a substratum of victimized organisms. How could the tiger live if there were no lambs to devour? How could there be heroes if there were no slaves? How could there be great nations if there were no contemptible ones? Compare the noble qualities inherent in some dogs with the obsequious virtues that distinguish nine men out of ten. Now, give to canine or homo equal liberty of action, equal opportunity, equal rights. And what will be the result? Must not the fiercest fighter fatten while the skeletons of lean weaklings project through their scrofulous hides? What power originating among themselves could dictate and enforce equality of opportunity? Socialism, Christianism, democratism, equalityism are really the whining yelping of base-bred mongrel multitudes. They howl aloud for state intervention, protection for suffering humans, regulated, mill-grinding as it were, with the state to be their supreme idol, their god and master, their all-in-all, all, their great pangidrum. Poor deluded, base-spirited weeds, truly the curse of God is in the very marrow of their bones, in every pump-stroke of their dying hearts. The man who prays to be protected by politicians, guarded by armed janissaries, saved by idolatrous priests, and redeemed by state regimentation, is indeed a miserable sinner, a vile, despicable, unmanly wretch. <laughs> man, this guy hates mechanics. <laughs> that's, that's all I got from that last section. My gosh. All right. What are you guys doing? Um, all right. Well, I don't really have anything to add. <laughs> Sorry. I, I thought I was going to have something, but I, I have nothing. I got none. Mm -hmm. In his day, it would have been in horseshoes right? Or a wagon wheel. It was probably a wagon wheel. Like some politician ended up like defunding his town or something. And then uh, the mechanic working on his wagon wheel sort of forgot a nail or something. And now he's just like riding this whole diatribe. <laughs> we can't take it anymore. <laughs> Flux capacitor in my ass. 
yeah, that's there it is. There it is. All right. What? I'm not even an hour in. <laughs> I'm kind of done. <laughs> I don't want to. I want him to move on because this sucks. All right. 12. No paternalistic governmental mechanism, however theoretically perfect, can ever keep the base-born and the well-born, the thoroughbreds and the hybrids in a state of perpetual equilibrium. You might as well try to bind down an earthquake with hoop iron as to rule the strong with a being enacted. Being enacteds were invented only to frighten captives with. What power on earth can permanently keep the Negro on a parody with the Anglo-Saxon? The strong must have their way in spite of all puritanic proscribings, all mock moralisms, all degrading legalisms, all constitutional covenatings. Neither the machinery nor the raw material of equality has ever existed. Only the dream, the idea of it. Equality, equality, in that one word, is summed up the accumulated dementia of 2,000 years. The thought of it was born in the brain of an inferior organism, and the brains of inferior organisms nourish it still. How can beings who for ages have been born and bred to toil and subjectivity ever comprehend the feelings of those who are freeborn and of valorous descent, of those who understand the cosmic law that might is master? You cannot muzzle a tempest with a cobweb, bridle a volcano with a shoestring, bottle up a cyclone and a powder horn, nor catch a tidal wave with a boat hook. Neither can you put a bit between the teeth of the strong. They will see you in shell first. No artificial plan of society, no pious incantations, however sincere and well-intentioned, can ever present... Prevent prevent the pot that is of iron from smashing and sinking, the pot that is of clay. And why should it? If social equilibrium had been feasible, it would have been established ages and ages ago. It never has been established, and it never shall. What then is the good of eternally dreaming, theorizing, and constructing phantom castles in the air, cities of God, and gardens of delight upon foundations of deliberate unveracity. Let us be men, whole men, not clamorous, tearful little children demanding infantile sugar plums. Let us face the fierce, challenging facts of existence as bold as our forefathers did before Christly comfort and consolation was introduced to unman them. Not like crouching, cringing, terrorized oriental pariahs. Let us not be lured to wholesale annihilation by sonorous Asiatic evangelisms that have proved themselves worthless and unsuitable to our temperament, our climate, and our breed. Let us be sensible, brave, practical, and as Virchow somewhat trenchantly recommends, accept things as they really are, not as we choose to imagine them, or rather, as they have been imagined by dotards, philosopher, daft poets, and castrated clerics. I remember what I wanted to say in part 11. He's talking about how some clay is better than other and, and grows better. 
and how that equates to some men are better than others. Anyone who gardens, anyone who takes care of their property understands you have to supplement the natural state because everything saps nutrients out of the soil. So you have to add back in those nutrients. Equally, you have to put time and energy into individuals in order to see them grow. It's the exact same fucking thing. Apparently this dude has never grown a tomato because if he had, <laughs> this entire book would be a completely, it would be like a gardening book instead. <laughs> Stupid. Uh, yeah, it is kind of uh, slam poetry. That's funny. Um, yeah, I just wanted to make sure that I was on there. <laughs> Myra. <laughs> a non-Aryan mechanic boned his girlfriend, and hence, we have a whole furious book. Jody. Yeah, Jody. Goddamn Jody. He is everywhere. You gotta watch out for that guy. <laughs> Does everyone know about Jody? Jody's got your girl. Does everyone know about that? I feel like you have to be in the military to know that. Or have been. Or around. Tangentially. <clears throat> Thirteen. The problem that we are ever called upon to solve, or be eaten up, is not how to make life happy and equal, for happiness is a moving mirage, and equality an impossibility, but how men may conquer their opportunities, surpass their rivals, extirpate their pursuers. The race is still to the swift, and the battle to the strong. Beauty and booty are always the prerogatives of victorious valor. Woe unto the ungeneraled ones. Tis a battle for bread, for love, and for breath. Tis a race for life to the jaws of death. Upon the island of Java, there is a remarkable valley of death. It is literally strewed with the bones and skulls and skeletons of innumerable dead animals and creeping things. In the due season, giant turtles, five foot by three in diameter, travel up through it from the sea to lay their eggs. In route, they are set upon by packs of wild dogs, and these dogs roll the turtles over upon their backs and then devour them alive by tearing out their unprotected entrails. When the dogs are gorged, they, in their turn, fall an easy prey to ambushed tigers. Then hunters kill these tigers for their variegated skins. Rank grass springs up after the raining season through the skulls and bones that litter this tropical Golgotha, and droves of cattle gather there to fatten. Again, the cattle are hunted for their hides, horns, and flesh, and their bones are also left where they fall to manure the valley and prepare it for new generations of hunters and hunted. Such is the miniature, a picture of the everyday world as it actually is. All living things being pursued and being pursued. Are pursuing and being pursued. Woe unto those that stumble. Woe unto ye who fall. They who accept the equality, faith, hope, and charity ideal in any shape or form whatever interpret the facts of moral life as they are not. As they have never been. 
as they can never be. Indeed, when the animal world becomes moralized and equalized, it will be extinct. No doubt when contemplating the dark side of all this, Pascal was impelled to write with superstitious medieval dispassion, I am affrighted like a man who in his sleep has been carried unto some horrible desert island, and there awakes not knowing where he is nor how he shall escape. Degenerates only are thus affrighted at the tragic majesty of their surroundings. If this struggle is ordained of us, why not enter it with kingly courage, with dauntless delight? Why not go forward, daring all things to conquer or to die? Is it not better to perish than to serve? Liberty or death is not a meaningless phrase. No, it is of tremendous import to those who comprehend. What is death that it should make cowards of us all? What is life that it should be valued so highly? There are worse things than death, and among them is a life of dishonor. All men lead dishonorable lives who serve a master with hand or brain. Life itself is but a spark in the gloom that flashes out and disappears. Why, therefore, not make the most of it here and now, here and now? There is no heaven of glory bright, and no hell where sinners roast. There is no right, there is no wrong, nor God, nor son, nor ghost. Death endeth all. For every man, for every son of thunder, then be a lion in the path, and don't be trampled under. For us there is no rest, no kingdom of indolence, either on this earth or beyond the skies, no isles of the blessed, no Ulyssian fields, no garden of the he he Hesperides. No. No, all these magical legends are but fanciful waking dreams, fiction of mortals of yore. Here and now is our day of torment. Here and now is our day of joy. Here and now is our opportunity to eat or to be eaten, to be lion or lamb. Here and now it is war to the knife, no escape, no retreat. Choose ye this day, this hour, for no redeemer liveth. Every attempt made to organize the future must necessarily collapse. The present is our domain, and our chief duty is to take immediate possession thereof upon strict business principles. Strive therefore against them that survive against you, and war against them that war against thine. Lay hold of shield and buckler, or their equivalents, stand up! Be a terrible one in thine own defense. Raise up also the clenched hand and stop the way of them that would persecute you. Say unto thine own heart and soul, I, even I, am my own redeemer. Let them be hurled back to confusion and infamy who's devised thine undoing. Let them be as chaff before the cyclone, and let the angel of death pursue them, nay, overtake them. In a pit they have hidden a trap for thy feet. Into that very destruction let them fall. Then, exultant, 
sound the loud tremble. Rejoice! Rejoice in thine own salvation! Then all thy bones shall say pridefully, Who is like unto me? Have I not delivered myself by my own brains? Have I not been too strong for mine adversaries? Have I not spoiled them? That would have spoiled me. I recognize some of that. Eh? Yeah. Yeah. A little bit of, uh, Book of Satan's in there. <laughs> Not too shabby. Uh, oh, I, yeah, Moira. LeVay literally, like, used this as the Book of Satan. He just cut out a bunch of shit, reformulated it in the same way he did the um, uh, Enochian Keys. <laughs> uh, Aaron, I think your uh, your daughter is right in another hour. <laughs> I'll need a cop job then. I got to be honest though, the, the, the inflection, that's what makes this interesting to me is the dramatic reading of it. Because if it was just like, I would go insane. Because then I'm just reading the text and there's nothing particularly interesting about racist text, you know? Oh, shit. Here we go. <sighs> We're going to have to go down the military road. <laughs> it's happening. All right. Good. I'm glad. Here we go. I'm going to fix my stash. <clears throat> Give my glasses. 14. This circling planet ball is no navel contemplating nirvana, but rather a vast whirling starlit Valhalla, where victorious battlers quaff the foaming heart's blood of their smashed-up adversaries from the scooped-out skull goblets of the slain in never-ending war. And behold, it is good. It is good. It is very good. Blending in bloody strife. Throat to throat, life for life, struggles the human still. And in that invigorating struggle, strength is renewable. Fitness to reign, propagate, and possess can there alone be tested with mathematical precision in nature's majestic judgment hall. That is to say, on the plains of conquest, where foemen look into foemen's eye and death lurks like a ravenous leopard in every bush. They who claim mastership upon any other basis than conquest are upstarts, usurpers, and ought therefore to be disposed without pity and without mercy in accordance with the cosmic decree of ethnic displacement. Death, I say! Death to every lie! Life is a duel, and only the fittest can possibly hope to succeed. If you would survive, O oh reader, in the highest meaning of that word, go to and put some splendor in your deeds. Beware of false philosophies that equalize you with slavelings and dastards. Beware of fattened priestlings and tax-collecting statesmen. Beware the tongue that is smoothly hung. And never forget for one moment that your greatest enemies upon earth are those crafty courtiers who eloquently, cunningly flatter you. 
that they may first win your heart and then skin you alive. The modern Mephistopheles is the soft-toned preacher in his pulpit, the editorial sophist in his network of lies, the political crocodile on his planks and his platforms. A trinity of hellhounds are they. Oh, would that they have but one neck, and I was Judge Lynch. America! America! In spite of all the surreptitious bonds that in thy sleep have been laid upon thee, yet pregnant thy womb is with men of nerve, men of valor, men of might. Lo, the hour approacheth, where in dire travail thou shalt give birth unto thunderbolts, and Jove's to handle them. Behold, that time cometh. Nay, it is at hand. But it will not be a period of pure delight. No, no, it will be a day of wrath, a dreadful day, a day of judgment, tribulation, triumph. And democracy, democracy, thou leprous thing, thou loathsome disease, thou plastic demon, thou murderer of man. Many nations have bowed down to thy infection and perished from off the earth. But America, America shall wipe thee out, thou blight, some malady, thou human rinder pest. Verily. Verily, a new nobility shall be born unto thee, O America, a breed of terrible commanders, of grim destroyers, a nobility unpurchasable with the minted tokens of money changers, a nobility of valor, of power, and of might, a nobility honorable, clear-sighted, clean-skinned, unconquerable. Through the future shines the sun of splendid struggle. Heroic nurtures, natures there lead on as they led on at Ilion. The natural man steps forth once more in all his daring grandeur, smashing unclean idols, defying gods and laws and slave-made morals. The philosophy of power condensed. How did government of man by man originate? By force of arms, victors became rulers. But among us, government by force is abolished. That is a popular delusion. It is stronger than ever. How is it that we do not see it clearly? No need of compulsion with inferiors ever eager to obey. How can the mastership of man be destroyed? It can never be destroyed. It is essential. But for one man to reign over another is wrong? What is wrong? The strong can do as they please. Who are the strong? They who conquer. They who take the spoil and camp on the battlefield. All life is the battlefield. How did subjectiveness originate? The first slave was defeated fighter, afterwards tamed by hunger and blows. His descendants, being born and trained to submissiveness, are more tractable. All the servile classes are posterity of beaten battlers. Then vassalage still flourishes among us as of yore? Certainly. In the pitiless strife for existence, all weaklings and feeble-minded persons are justly subordinated. But we are taught all men are created equal. You are taught many a diplomatic lie. 
How can a slave recover his liberty? By reconquering his conqueror. If he feels that he is not man enough for his master, then he must submit. Cut his own throat or die fighting unsubdued. But freedom may be granted to him? Freedom cannot be granted. It must be taken. Then strife is perpetual, inevitable, nay, glorious? Yes, it is intended as an ordeal, a trial by combat. It unmistakably divides the guilty from the non-guilty. But that is a harsh philosophy. Nature is harsh, cruel, merciless to all unlovely things. Her smile is only for the courageous, the strong, the beautiful, and the all-daring. You have no comfort for the poor and lowly, the, the innocent ones, the downtrodden. The poor and lowly are a creeping pestilence. There are no innocent ones, and the downtrodden are the justly damned, sinners in a hell they've made. You praise the strong, you glorify the mighty ones? I do. They are nature's noblemen. In them she delights. The all-vanquishers, the dauntless ones. Chapter 4. That was the end of chapter 3. Oh, mama. All right, what are you guys saying here? Oh, man, I need my glasses to even read what you guys are saying. Shit. <laughs> my eyes are getting so blurry, I can't actually read this. How do I, uh... <laughs> I don't know how to... Oh, Zoom, here we go. Yeah. Old man eyes. Yeah. I just still need to figure out who was behind the pseudonym. Yeah, Arthur Desmond. That's who it is. That's who wrote it. It was not London. Okay, so I'm saying this just because even the doctor suggested Desmond based on original writings and locales. Um, but the authoritative edition released by uh, uh, Underworld Amusements also in their examinations and study has, has come to the same conclusion. Not that I think it really matters. I, I rather prefer the idea of Ragnar Redbeard because, because the ideas in this, not all of them, some of them, were manufactured in order to keep one kind high and keep one kind low, or many kinds low. Um, so is the name manufactured. It's all manufactured. It's all fake. It's all made up. Everything is made up. Nothing is real except for nature. And so this entire book is written, is made up. It's not real. It's not true. It's not fact. Just as with everything in life, there are elements of fact sprinkled in when referencing nature. Yeah. But, I don't know. Yeah. The, here's the deal. Like, Underworld Amusements has put out some really great satanic volumes. Like, really, really great stuff. Um, right now, it seems to be on a bent of egoism over Satanism, which, whatever, you know, cool. Do your thing. But, um, not really, I don't know. I guess the ultimate idea behind it is that egoism informs Satanism you can't really deny um 
But uh, I don't know. I, I prefer to just uh, stick with stuff that I find entertaining rather than focus on a philosophy and run down that exhaustible philosophical road. Hmm. Right, yeah. Okay, anyway, definitely check them out. If you dig it, good on you. Let's move on to chapter four. Oh yeah, here we go. Chapter four, man, the carnivore. It has taken countless evolutionary epochs to make man what he is, the most ferocious, hirsute beast of the prey that inhabits the caverns and jungles of earth. Can his osseous mechanism and pathologic instincts be summarily extinguished or reversed merely by connecting him per an electric wire laid through the sewers of Rome to the feeble dynamos of Bethlehem and Tarsus? Can his structural anatomy, intended for conflict and slaughter, be transformed in a day, a year, or even in a million millions of suns? To overmaster and devour his neighbors in the reasoned effort to obtain food and booty, land, love, renown, and gold, is bred into the very marrow of his bones. Therefore, all efforts made by reformers and messiahs to transfigure him into a lamb are foreordained to fathomless failure. Indeed, it would be much more reasonable of them to attempt the transfiguration of a grizzly bear into a parlor poodle or propose the transformation of a bald eagle into a gentle cooing turtle dove. Nearly all the prophetic demigods of democracy, from Paul to Isaiah to Carlyle and Ruskin, have ever been madly screeching by the roadside, vainly endeavoring to stay the march, march, march of a world of bannered armies striding grimly, sternly by. What are these howling prophets of evil but dogs eloquently baying at the moon? Right wheel there! Right wheel! Turn back! Turn back! You're going to the devil! Is their resounding, ear-splitting chorus. But the human flood sweeps on silently, scornfully confident, inspired as it were by some overmastering instinct. We may be going to the devil, is the unspoken retort of these thundering legionnaires, these nations. But even so, is not the devil honest? The destroyer of deception! The disobedient one? Can you lasso the stars with a green hide lariat? Can you block the march of might with magnificent howls of declamatory despair? No! No! Skyward or hellward, man moves on and on and on. If there are barricades in his way, he must surmount them or blast them aside. If there are wild beasts ready to spring upon him, he must destroy them or they will destroy him. If the high road leads through hells, then those infernos must be besieged, assailed, and taken possession of. Aye, even if their present monarchs have to be rooted out with weapons as demoniac as, and as deadly as their own. This world is too peaceful, too acquiescent, too tame. It is a circumcised world, nay, a castrated world. It must be made fiercer before it can become grander or better and more natural. Fools indeed are they who would attest the unfolding process with humanitarian cagliostroism and rescuing the perishing mummery. 
Maniacs are they who would ward off the sun's blazing rays from withering souls or the blighted frosts of winter from hearts that are already broken. For, I doubt not, through the ages, one tremendous purpose runs, and maturing crops are ripened with the process of the suns, to be sickled down, threshed, and rolled away. Nations rise, rule, decay, and every dog has his day. Yeah, Blighted Forest is great. Man, I saw them last summer. So badass. <laughs> Their song, um, Cagliostroism and Rescue the Perishing Mummery is my favorite, personally. Can't even say that goddamn word. Sorry, guys. I'm, <laughs> I'm clearly unprepared and just not educated enough to read this properly. I can't help it. But he's fun, no? It's good times, eh? All right, I got a little over half hour left. Let's see how far we can get. This is killing me. Like, I'm genuinely losing interest. <laughs> Gotta be honest. And I'm only like halfway through this book. There's gonna be like three more of these. Ugh. <clears throat> It's pretty funny, Zachary. <clears throat> he has he's one of those guys that just has tons of medieval weapons that he's never bothered learning how to properly use, but because he has them, it means he's, you know, more of a warrior than anyone else. They rest gently on his wall, and if you tried to pull one off, you'd realize quickly that it was in fact just decorative, but it's there. It's real, it's a warrior's weapon. Hence he must be a warrior, this sort of proximity warrior that we have nowadays white supremacists who latch on to Viking culture or Germanic barbarians, the Goths of ages gone by, as if they somehow could even exist in the same universe at the same time, they would be torn apart by their own grandparents, let alone those true animals of men from our pasts. Anyone who grows up in modern culture, who is using social networking on the regular, who's working out in their sterilized gym, is not a fucking Viking. I'm sorry. You're just not. You're not tougher because you're white or because you've read history or watched a movie and found some connection, romantic connection with it. The truth is, you would probably be one of the vassals that get squashed. Statistically, you'd be a blip, not a warrior. Sucks, but it's true. I'm not exempt. I'm just stating the fact. When you imagine the masses of people who were just cut down, statistically, we would be them. <laughs> We would not be the heroes standing against a lone blackened sky with lightning flashing and metal thumping in the air. That's all made up bullshit. That's not real. These fucking guys just beaten off to fucking the idea of heavy metal. I'm a heavy metal Viking. Oh, yeah. You get it on your shield. 
And you're going to have to fucking clean your shield. Fucking people. No! Half this country couldn't camp! They can't actually camp! If you can't sleep outside for one fucking night without all the comforts that you've begun, uh, been used to, there's no way you could survive in any other culture! Fucking people nowadays, man. Ugh. Ugh. <laughs> Ugh. Yeah, that's why every time I see, like, this perfectly sculpted man... Who is like, I am, I believe in Odinism or I'm, you know, Aryan nation. You would never look like that back then. What are you thinking? Do you, do you think that's all Vikings did was sit around and bench press? Do fucking crunches? <laughs> we have such a skewed reality of history. It is so ridiculous. It's like filtered. <laughs> this is, this is going to be. I had this conversation with a Den Arden back in the day where I was like, growing up, every idea of masculinity in film and popular culture, nowadays reflecting on it, it's super fucking gay. And he was like, yeah, of course. <laughs> because it was gay men making it. So the irony of modern men who are seeing themselves as these pure, you know, white nationalists they're filtering everything through a homosexual lens of history. <laughs> not, not through the reality of it. And I find that so rewarding. It's just such a wonderful thought. Oh, I love it. <laughs> anyway, okay. I'm sorry. I don't know why I'm going off on that. Let's continue. I'm trying to run down the clock. Two. Undoubtedly, the black magic of the Christ myth combined with the subterranean sorcery of medieval sacerdotalism has partially succeeded, not only in sapping individual initiative, but also in suppressing in our race many of its ancestral leonine traits and superb barbaric virtues. But as yet, it has not wholly triumphed in its emasculating necromancy. No. It has not transfigured us all into teams of contented oxen and bunches of earmarked sheep, although that is evidently its final hope. There are some of the grand old stock yet still alive. Few indeed are they, amidst a world of slaves and swine. The lion is still the lion, although his teeth have been mostly foully filled, uh, filed down by abominable moral codes. His skin made scrofulous with the mange and leprosy of caged peacefulness. His paws fettered by links of slave-voted statues. And an iron collar of state officialism wound around his regal neck. Someday, sometime, he is destined to break through the vile bonds that have been cunningly laid on him. Escape from the wasting decline that originates from unnatural confinement and regain once more his primitive freedom of action. The treacherous legislators and illustrious statesmen who are now so eager to teach him this method of growing uh, wool like sheep, and how to fit his battle-scarred soldiers' shoulders into a horse collar may then be sorry and sad if they have time, for he will probably chew them up. Great and powerful governments commanding peace come into existence only in ages of decadence, when nations are on the downward grade. 
If the human animal lives a natural, cleanly life on the, out on the plains and forests, away where oceans, rollers crash along the shore or on the banks of the pouring rivers, he requires no police force to protect him, no usurious Jew to rob him of his harvests, no tax-gathering legislators to vote away his property, and no priests of the idol to save his soul. It is false standards of morality that debase and enfeeble individuals, tribes, and nations. First, in obedience to some sovereign code, they lose their hardihood and increase their numbers. Then, that all may live, they become laborious, submissive to regulations, and finally, with death held up by priestcraft as a fearsome terror, all personal valor fades away. Thus, nations of spaniels are manufactured. The normal man is the man that loves and feasts and fights and hunts the predatory man. The abnormal man is he that toils for a master, half starves and thinks the Christly dog. The first is a perfect animal, the second a perfect monster. Every belief that makes a duty of humility, that inspires a people with moral courage, only enervates their fiber, corrupts their spirit, and prepares them first for thraldom and then for throttling. It is not impossible to conceive a grand life without incessant rivalry, perpetual warfare, and the implacable hunting of man by man. Terror torture, agony, and the wholesale destruction of feeble and worn-out types must mark in future, as in the past, every step forward or backward in evolution, homo culture, and racial displacement. The soil of every nation is an arena, a stamping ground where only the most vigorous animals may hope to hold their own. What is all history but the epic of a colossal campaign the final Armageddon of which is never likely to be fought, because when men cease to fight, they cease to be men. This old earth is strewn to the very mountain tops with the fleshless skulls and rain-bleached bones of perished combatants in countless myriads. Every square foot, every inch of soil contains its man. Alright, what do we got here? The trick is to do everything the hardest way possible, then you'll be jacked. Want to go somewhere? Walk. Uphill both ways. Nice. Uh, I love wrestling and guy culture as much as the next, but I could never idolize someone who's solely based on how well they catch a football or run. Um, yeah, it's interesting because we certainly celebrate exceptionalism, right? Either on a sports field or on a, 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 a painter's canvas or, or a, a musical tablature, right? Like we celebrate exceptionalism for sure. But idolize? Yeah, I'm with you. I, I don't think I could do that. 
especially if you accept the reality that all men are not created equal and that everyone has innate capacity that you can push a little bit to go beyond your, your natural skill, but you can't really go much further than that. To idolize someone who is just simply different is foolish because you should be idolizing yourself, realizing that you will continually grow to be a better version of you. And that should be what you're worshiping, right? Not what someone else is capable of. Certainly champion it. Congratulate them. Shake their fucking hand. But to idolize them, I don't know about that. I, I, I have a problem with that as well. Um, uh, you recently began using that perfect push. Oh, you guys are talking about exercise. All right. <laughs> uh, that dog, that is absolutely true. Strong people are harder to kill. Yeah, yeah. Everyone should be exercising. <laughs> Just because your it, it makes your entire body healthy so that you can survive things like viruses, <laughs> you know? I mean... It's like a, it's one of those no shit things. Everyone knows, but very few people actually do, which is weird, right? I remember I, I was in a basic training and they were showing us, you know, all the exercises for the very first time that we're going to do every single morning. And everyone was like, why, how long do, do we have to do this after, when we get to our final duty station, are we going to have to do this after basic training? He's like, our drill instructor was like, you should be doing this your whole life. This shouldn't just be a basic training exercise regimen. This should be every day for the rest of your life because it makes you healthy so that you can survive life. And at the time, I was like, ah, oh, fuck. I don't want to do this every goddamn day. And then every morning, I wake up at 5.30 and I exercise. I don't think about it. I just do it because I want to live and I want to be in a physical state that I can survive life. It's a weird notion, right? When you're not used to doing it, it seems like this strange, daunting idea. But it's the only way you're going to last longer and be healthier so that you can enjoy the time that you have left. That's wild. All right. Anyway, I can't get to every comment you guys are making, so let's just move on. Three. The evolution, or devolution, of mankind demands the perpetual transfiguration of one man into another. Continuous reincarnation, eternal rebirth, and reconstruction. Scientifically considered, the resurrection of the dead is not an illusion. Every living organism is formed from the decomposed essence of pre-existent organisms. The man of today is actually built up out of the grave mold of his prototypes perhaps of ages long forgotten. Thus, without death, there could be no birth material, and without conflict, fierce and deadly, there could be no surpassing. But to individuals foolishly trained to bewail their fate, all these commonplace facts are agonizing. When we solemnly look upon this perpetual conflict, writes Schelling, with true theoretic pessimism, it fills us with shuddering sorrow and with boundless alarm. But how can we help it? Hence the veil of sadness that is spread over all nature, the deep indestructible melancholy of all life. 
Like many other philosophers, deceived by appearances, Schelling fancies savage and dreadful that which is pure, mischievous that which is preservative, and calamitous that which is benign. The flow of destruction is as natural and as needful as the flow of water. No human ingenuity can destroy the immolation of man nor prevent the shedding of blood. And why should it? Majestic Nature's continues on her tra tragic way serenely, caring not for the wails of the agonized and panic-stricken, nor the protests of defeat but smiling sadly, proudly, yet somewhat disdainfully in her passing stride, at the victor's fierce hurrah. She loves the writhing of sword blades, the rending of tradition, the crunching of bones, and the flap of shredded, shot-torn banners, streaming out savagely in the night and the day over the battle-weary, the mangled dying, and the swollen dead. Christ's may come, and Christ's may go, but Caesar reigns forever. Deep, permanent, and abiding is the elemental antagonism between the sociology of the man of Nazareth and the imprescribable laws of the universe. They are as fire and water to each other. Irreconceivable. Indeed, our planetary system itself shall melt with fervent heat ere the Galilean's philosophy can conquer. No human being can ever hope to attain the perfectibility that is in Christ. So long as we remain animals, we shall be dominated by animal wants and animal passions and animal rivalries. Undoubtedly, the Messiah's ideal is unattainable, hopeless, and especially so upon its reformatory side. However, the world loves to be deceived by some ghastly delusion, and that is the reason, perhaps, that it has taken to its bosom this rustic fable, this gospel of ineffectuality, this evangel of darkness, this dream of an Israelite slave. When the Assyrians, and after them the Medes and Persians, writes Tacitus, were masters of the Oriental world, the Jews of all nations, then, then held in subjection, were deemed the most contemptible. Christ was a pariah Jew. Among virile, conquering tribes, the ideal man is ever the all-daring Jove, the splendid Apollo, the self-reliant Achilles, or the constructive genius. It is only in centuries of dotage in ages of cankersome downgoing and nervous disease, that the model man becomes a Christ. The model man of our forefathers was Odin, a warlord. But our ideal man is a weeping, horse-whipped Jew. A Jew for a god. Oh, horrible. The deities of the Greeks and Vikings, Goths and Romans, were all originally mighty men of valor or viral, uh, virile women of surpassing beauty, afterwards held up before their warlike posterity as splendid examples of natural nobility, conscious power, daring courage, shrewdness, sexual vigor, and boundless strength of character. The gods and heroes of antiquity spent their vital force in the destruction of monsters, in the seizure of new hunting grounds, in the slaughtering of tyrants, 
and in the breeding of unconquerable sons. But Christ, the God of Christendom, the divine exemplar, the majestic figure, what godlike deed did he ever do? What unconquerable sons did he beget? If the first principles of Christianity should, by an unforeseen miracle triumph in the elemental conflict that is approaching, assuredly the Anglo-Saxon has played out his days, numbered, his dominion ended, his sepulture prepared. Multitudinous multiplication of unfit millions, broods of stromous semi-idiots, must then proceed through the dreary, barren, brain-paralyzing centuries, winding up perhaps in a blast of pestilential plague, a black death. The dead and alive conditions of the celestial empire will then be applied to this western world, and under the thin disguise of advancement, progress, and civilization, an atmosphere of excruciating torture must be artificially created, hostile to all but degenerative forces, as in China, in the name of goodness, righteousness, and morality. Woe shall be poured upon our seed, as it has already been poured upon, poured out on the rotten swarms of the Orient. Congenit congenital enfeeblement of body, together with organic degeneracy of mind, must then go on and on at an ever-accelerating ratio, until our posterity may end, as Darwin imagined we began, by becoming chattering apes without sense enough to light a fire, crack a coconut, or swing by their tails. Behold the modern man, this heir of all ages in the foremost ranks of time. His sight, taste, smell, and hearing all are notoriously defective. He can harness thunderbolts, but the unerring instinct of a carrier pigeon is beyond him. His brain has become an overheated thinking engine, but he may not read the daily morning liar without spectacles. He understands more things than he used to, or thinks he does, but if suddenly removed from his artificial environment, he would perish as helplessly as the babes in the wood. He can gauge sound waves, photograph broken bones, construct gigantic iron monsters, whisper across miles of copper wire, but when the pointer dog sniffs the hidden pheasant from afar off, this erudite bundle of nerves looks on in blank amazement. The fact is that the civilized man is gradually losing his senses. If he continues to progress at the existing rate in a comparatively little while, he will have no smell, no sight, no hearing. Dire visions, worse foreboding, glare upon me through the gloom. Europe's smoke cloud sinks corroding on the land in noisome fume. Showering down like rain of ashes on the cities of God's doom, bustling smug, a pygmy pack plucks its prey from oars embraces, walks with crooked soul and back, glares like dwarfs with greedy eyes, for the golden glittering lies. It is good for degraded people to be utterly consumed. Oh, man. All right. I can do 15 more minutes. That's right. Oh, man, man, man. 
it's funny because on one hand he's saying that this ethnic background is worse than this or better than that but then in the next lines he's like all men are are degrading and we are all going to you know end up worse than ever um not even men it's just like pessimism upon pessimism upon bigotry upon hate upon i don't know i think he needs a hug if if someone has a time machine out there can you go back and just give give good old arthur a hug i think he needs it it'll do him good <laughs> Vashuri, yeah, oh yeah, oh yeah, <laughs> for sure. This dude is just saying the exact same things over and over and over and over again. So yeah, he could definitely condense this thing. And, and instead of doing the uh, authoritative edition uh, the Underworld Amusements put out, maybe Underworld Amusements would consider doing the condensed version, where nothing is repeated over and over again, no ideas are retread over and over again, it would be like a three-page pamphlet. And that's it. This is fucking ridiculous. You ever find yourself in those situations where you're like, I'm going to do this. And then you're in the middle of doing that, and you're like, this is miserable. I should stop doing this. But you already started down the path, so you're like, eh, I might as well just finish it. That's where I am with the reading of this book. <laughs> like genuinely, I'm not enjoying this at all. I think the doctor did, yeah, Blake, the doctor did the condensed version in the book of Satan. It was the best parts of it. It cut out all the fat and it was perfectly preserved and I love it dearly. And now I'm just like, fuck, dude, now I got to read the rest of this shit. Why am I doing this again? Do I just hate myself? Is that what this is about? God damn it. Yeah. Yeah, he did a great job. All right. Couple more minutes. Here we go. Four. In the Department of Natural History, it is axiomatic that all kinds of living beings, from protozoa to man, subsist and propagate through and by the destruction of feebler competitors belonging to the same species or to kindred species. Thus, the big fish eat the little fish. The big trees, by absorbing and monopolizing the nutriment, eat up the little trees. The strong animals eat the weak animals, and so on ad infinitum. Man is no exception. Conquering and masterful nations have ever been ravenous devourers of flesh food, and most of them have also been man-eaters. The slaughterhouses of Christendom reek with the dying effluvia of millions and millions of butchered brutes did man the king of animals may day by day eat flesh drink blood and gnaw bones even cannibalism is not extinct in far lands nor quite unknown in the centers of our proudest civilizations with the first great revolutionary cataclysm its revival upon a gigantic scale is not an improbability during the 11th century man's flesh was cooked sold and eaten in England. And Englishmen may even revert to anthropophagy. 
anthropophagy. If ever their imported food supply should be suddenly and entirely cut off, either by convulsions or nature or acts of war. Shipwreck crews have repeatedly saved themselves by casting lots and devouring some of their number, and shipwreck nations loaded up to the hatches with seething cargoes of festering useless nondescripts may yet be driven to do the same. Innumerable are the folklore legends relating to ancient and modern man-eaters. Formal human sacrifices upon the altars of idols are quite common. In Mexico and ancient Britain, prelates butchered their victims, generally young virgins, in public. Amid the acclaim of musical instruments, the chanting of beautiful liturgies, and the hosanna, shouts of the mob. The modern prelate does not employ the rude smoking gully knife, but uses other weapons ten times more keen and more destructive. For every human sacrifice offered up in olden times, millions are offered up now. Oh my goodness. I would totally eat human flesh. I don't, I, I, like, I, I eat all sorts of animals. Why would I not try that? I don't, I don't get it. I think I would have a hard time subsisting solely on <laughs> human flesh, especially if it was gross. But, you know, we, we eat a lot of meat that's gross without seasoning or sauce. So why not human? I don't know. I don't get it. Yeah. Give it a go. Look, all I'm saying is if there are, you know, maybe, maybe those serial killers, those cannibal serial killers, maybe they knew something that we don't. Hmm? Maybe they're like, have you ever had... Human liver, mm. my goodness, you're missing out. It's like the best. It's like foie gras. It's delicious. Yeah, cannibal holocaust. <laughs> like in a survival situation, I don't care who you are. You're gonna eat human, just to survive, just to exist. Otherwise, you don't really want to live, right? That being said, it's not my first choice. <laughs> Never had it, but I'd give it a go. You know, why not? I had sushi. That's fucking gross. I know everyone loves it. It's super popular, but I'm not down with it. I love cooked fish. Maybe I would like cooked human cheek. <laughs> Who knows? All right, here we go. This is going to be the last one, probably. <clears throat> Five. Professor Huxley pictorially describes an African butcher shop where human steaks, roasts, and sirloins were systematically retailed. Josephus tells us of mothers who ate their own infants during the last siege of Jerusalem, and in many later sieges, human flesh has been consumed. Oriental traditions record of King Richard Lionheart, the once upon a time when presiding at a horrible feast of Muslim heads, he remarked with a grim matter-of-factness that one roast Saracen made good entertainment for nine or ten of my good Christian men. An English crusading rhymer is even proud of this. King Richard shall warrant there is no flesh so nourishing unto an English man, partridge, plover, heron, ne swan, cow, ne ox, sheep, ne swine, as the roast head of a Saracen. 
Very intelligent New Zealand aboriginals may still be found who will describe with much apparent gusto how, in comparatively recent dates, they satiated their ravenous hunger by banqueting all night upon the grilled flesh of foemen they had tomahawked during the day. Neither is it uncommon to hear tattooed old veterans tell how war captives were penned up like cattle and fattened upon each other until required for the tribal oven formed of red-hot stones paved into the oval hollow in the ground. How then the fattest were selected one by one taken out, systematically bled, disemboweled, and hung up by the heels on neighboring trees, just as sheep, swine, and cattle are exposed for sale in our own abattoirs and meat markets. The mayoress also have a tradition that if a man kills and eats his enemy, he, by doing so, absorbs all the dead man's vitality, strength, and courage. In the nascent colony of New Zealand, missionaries, soldiers, whalers, and pioneers were often cooked and eaten, but by a general consensus of Epicurean opinion, the Pakeas flesh was voted bad form, principally because it was too tough and too salt. During the War of Secession, northern infantrymen accidentally imprisoned in a Virginian mine devoured each other one at a time. The last man, John Ewing, died of hunger and, leaving a written record of the facts, sealed up in a flask. The story of Sawney Bean is well known, also the classical legends of the Cyclops, the Giants, the Phalaris Bull, the Moloch Holocausts, and Homer's Polyphemus. Anthropophagy has been practiced in Australia, both by whites and black fellows. In New Guinea and portions of Africa, man-eating is quite an ordinary custom to this hour. Marcus Clark describes how Gibet, an English-born Botany Bay convict, induced his prison comrades to escape with him into the bush in order that he might have a holiday and a feast, picking their succulent bones and sucking out the marrow thereof. All over continental Europe, there is a popular superstition that Jew rabbis steal and murder Christian infants and maidens in order to use the blood on the door lintels at Passover and other ceremonials. A similar charge was brought against the early Christians and even proved in the imperial law courts if we are to judge by the verdicts. Human fat is regularly retailed in modern drugstores and human heads are even now a marketable commodity in the South Seas. There are also mystic brotherhoods in our midst whose initiates pledge fidelity and obligate themselves to lifelong secrecy by drinking blood out of a skull over emblems of violent death with daggers pointed at their throats. The foundation stones of many famous buildings, palaces, castles, and temples and monuments have been emblematically laid upon the living body of a man, the Kremlin, for example. Is not the communion service allegorical anthropophagy? I can't say that word. Is it not a pious, periodical cannibal feast in more ways than one? Does not the wine symbolize human blood and the wafers typify human flesh? Metaphorically considered, every trading Christian state is a meat market wherein the flesh, bones, and blood not only of men, but of women and little children, are bought and sold daily, offered up nominally for the love of God, really for the love of dollars. Atrocities of the most revolting description are, are of daily, hourly occurrence, not only in Turkey and Siam, but in New York and Chicago, 
Not only in Cuba and Port Arthur, but in London, Madrid, and Paris. Not only in Mashonaland and on the Congo, but in St. Petersburg and Berlin. Men, women, and little children are being everywhere, starved solely to the grave, worked till they fall down, driven insane by legislation, and even tortured to death, inch by inch. Great financial corporations backed by the state, directed mostly by Hebrews, literally coin great empires into golden dividends, and upon the share, lists of mortgage banks and man-devouring institutions generally may be found the names of bishops, posts, popes, preachers, generals, governors, statesmen, and other human carnivores by the thousand. He who doubts should look upon the official share registers and behold the long rows of adorable names belonging to high priests, philanthropists, and rulers appearing thereon. Cannibalism was practiced in ancient Greece at the period of highest culture. Herodotus, Herodotus describes Asian feasts where men's flesh was the chief dish, and down to the 13th century, the Thibetans were in the habit of making their parents into broth. There are confraterner... There are confraternities still in existence, existence into which no one is ever admitted until he has first killed a man. Fraternities. Confraternities. Among the Dyaks, as among our own ancestors, a youth is never considered a full-grown person capable of founding a home until he has slain at least one enemy in battle. The thugs of India, a religious sect, brought the science of holy murder by strategic violence to such a pitch of perfection that they have never been surpassed, not even by Grant or Moltke. The Kinderawas of Indian made a regular practice of eating all their diseased, useless, senile, and decrepit relations, just as packs of wolves fall upon any of their number that is seriously wounded in foray. In portions of Sumatra, lawbreakers are neither imprisoned nor electrocuted, but actually carved up and eaten alive, piece by piece. The Kapanagugas of South America make of their own stomachs the sepulture of their dead relatives. A funeral with them is a banquet, the collation being a corpse. The Terra del Fuegans throttle and eat all very old women. The Monbutas of Central America carry on aggressive wars to capture flesh food. They also dry human flitches in the sun and smoke them for export. During the Taiping Rebellion, Chinese soldiers under General Gordon were in the habit of cutting out and devouring the hearts of their dead enemies on the battlefield, like the Maoris and Britons. Mistresses were especially kept by opulent ancient Peruvians to breed sucklings for the table. When these women became too old for childbearing, they were likewise cast into the pot and useless encumbrances. In 1782, more than 40 gypsies were executed in Austria upon a proved charge of cannibalism. The case of the herdsman Goldschmidt must not be forgotten, nor the gruesome London legends regarding sausages being manufactured out of dead cats, dead dogs, dead paupers, and murdered sailors. The ancient Scandinavians, Teuton Celts, Vide St. Jerome, 
Scythians, Mongols, Sarmatians, Canaanites, Goths, and Huns were all anthropophagy. Indeed, the detailed facts of how men have tortured each other for pleasure, revenge, or profit would fill 10,000 volumes. No man in his lifetime could read or comprehend all the horrors that have been perpetrated, say in the Tower of London, the Paris Bastille, the Spanish Inquisition, the Rhine Castle Dungeons, by the Bridge of Sighs, the Bosphorus, or in the prison hells of Chicago, Newgate, Mazas, Siberia, Sing Sing, New Caledonia, Botany Bay, or Van Diemen's Land. The cold blood cruelty of man to man surpasses anything that poet Cranks could conceive of as happening in hell. Cannibalism undoubtedly originated amid overcrowded populations in some prehistoric age. Among moderns, civilized and savage, it merely exists as a survival of social conditions that have long since passed away. At some former era of the world's profoundly mysterious history, men-animals increased in swarming myriads as they are doing now, until at last on the surface of the soil there was scarcely standing room at all. Then the air became laden with the reeking effluvia of their strumuous bodies, breeding decimating pestilences, cholera, smallpox, leprosy, poisoning the wells and rivers, and transforming Babylons into charnel houses and tombs. The rearing of tame cattle for food in such an environment probably became too expensive and cumbersome. Perhaps even the cattle would also be swept away by some blight or rinderpest. Under such horrible circumstances, survivors might be might from necessity resort to anthropophagy. Gradually, the new habit would grow upon them and become a settled custom. The segmental fragments of prehistoric civilizations are the cannibal savages of today, the savages that we are displacing, pushing aside in order that we may enslave them and repeat over again the same weary old round of growth, power, and decay. Shiploads of dead soldiers dug out from old battlefields possess a regular commercial value. They are imported into England to be chemically treated and manufactured into fertilizers for enriching exhausted wheat fields. Human hair commands a steady sale, and cadavers may be bought for dissection in any great city for a dollar. COD. The tanning of human skins for glove making and book binding, mutin, is an old established industry. The transfusion of blood from animals into human veins and from healthy humans into unhealthy ones for a price is regularly practiced by medical men. The grafting of flesh, bone, and skin has also been successfully performed. American sheriffs and detectives hunt down tramps and criminals with specially trained bloodhounds just as Russians hunt wolves and sheep farmers hunt coyotes and dingoes. It is nowise unusual for Negroes to be first captured, then chained to a stake, flayed alive, soaked in kerosene, and burnt to death amid exultant shrieks of corybantic delight. Roman senators fattened their lampreys and eels upon the drowned bodies of old worn-out slaves and patrician maids and matrons, with uplifting thumb, send many a gladiator to kingdom come. For innate cruelty of deed, no animal can surpass a woman." In Mahomedan, Europe, boys are unsexed by the lancet that they may thereafter be more safely employed as harem attendants. And in Christian Europe, eunuchs are made and trained and priced to sing the praise of a risen Christ. 
Young girls are nightly bought and sold for currency like horses and hogs at the street corners and upon the profits of licensed polyandry, pillars of the church become millionaires. Even the salaries of fulminating evangelists are paid out of Rahab's rent. Baths of human blood are not unknown to students of history, and Jack the Ripper with his letters written in harlot's blood enclosing pieces of fried woman's liver to the London chief of police is certainly not a fabulous ancient legend. Is this the record of a breed of dearly beloved brethren? What hollow mockery these holy phrases are to be sure. The brotherhood of men. <laughs> the brotherhood of devils, rather. Allegorically speaking, the clothes we wear, the houses we live in, the food we eat, the books we read, have been carved by force out of other men's bones and flesh. Literally, they are the hides, sinews, flesh, pulp, and outer woolen coverings of captive animals transmuted by human slavery into garments, lumber, implements, thoughts, shoes, and daily dinners. Indeed, man's tushes are against all other animate beings whatsoever, and in turn, their fangs are against him. So it goes on and on and on as merrily as marriage bells. Via Victus! And behold, it is good! This world is no nirvana where peaceful pleasure flows. It is a gruesome butcher shop where slain men hang in rows. And that's it. That is the end of five. We're stopping at chapter four, part six. Mama, am I tired? My goodness. <laughs> All right, people. Thank you so much for tuning in. I'm sweating. <laughs> I'm tired. I'm generating a headache. One man can only take so much racism and ignorance before he must turn it all off. So thank you all so much for tuning in. I appreciate it. Two hours. Oof. Uh, I mean, I'm a little over halfway, so who knows? We'll get there eventually, maybe. Um, if you like these shows, uh, the different satanic series I produce, Reading Aloud Live being one of them, um, subscribe to the YouTube channel. Sign up to the email list. And if you're getting this via audio podcast after the fact, how about a rating and a review? I would appreciate that. Um, of course, I encourage everyone to tune in live so that you can interact with the chat because you guys are rocking it. I truly appreciate your interaction. It makes this so much more entertaining for myself. And I imagine for people watching it after the fact as well. Um, but that's going to do it for this episode. Thank you so much again. And until next time, whenever that may be, Hail Satan.